Welcome to Intersection. I'm your host, Phil Allen, and um, we have our guest today, my friend, Bobby Harrison, is in the house. He's here to share his heart, his insight, his wisdom. As always, I'm going to let him uh, self-introduce, talk a little bit about, about who he is, give us some, some background, some context. But Bobby, just like Inez, I met Bobby in a MLK class at Fuller Seminary. We met in Theology and Ethics of Martin Luther King Jr. And Bobby was sitting on, on the other side of the room. And um, I think I swear I shared about my grandfather's murder. And he, had, he was there to witness that. And that was actually the first time I'd ever shared anything like that. It just hit me in the moment watching the film, Eyes on the Prize, and we seeing uh, Emmett Till's body. It reminded me of my grandfather. Uh, and Bobby and I got to know each other after that. And um, I was eager to invite him to preach at um, Own Your Faith, the ministry I lead. And he's always brought a powerful, powerful word. But most importantly for me, uh, one thing we share, we both country boys from the South. <laughs> so that's one thing we share in common. Um, and we both live here in the Southern California area. But um, I, can't, I can't say this enough. Um, man of integrity and high character, a humble confidence. And those are the things that draw me to people. Integrity and high character. Um, all the other accolades and all that stuff that Bobby's going to share and all the background accomplishments or just whatever he's done, whatever he's going to share. Um, those things to me are great and they give context, but I need people to understand the person they're listening to in this podcast is uh, a man of character and high integrity. Someone that I w w would love um, serving with and doing ministry with and just doing life with as we get older. Hopefully we'll get old and we'll still be connected Amen. Um, but I'm going to let Bobby just uh, share a little bit about who he is, uh, give background, context, um, maybe a little bit about his journey um, thus far. Bobby Harrison, it's on you, man. Crowd goes wild. I hear it. <laughs> I feel it. Um, hey, thank you, man. After an intro like that, I mean, come on. You set, you set the ball right there on the tee for me. Um, so I was actually born outside Chicago, uh, moved around the country a little bit until I was about seven years old, and we landed back in my parents' hometown of Little Rock, Arkansas. Bible Belt South, I mean, we are in it. We're in the, the heart of yeah. segregation, desegregation, and that was just life growing up. But for me, I didn't have my eyes awake to that yet. Um, because I moved around a little bit, you said, you said we're both country boys. Um, I was resistant to that as a kid. I don't know if you experienced any of that or if you just always wore it as pride. My dad was in radio, and he had this like really amazing neutral you know i put that in quotes voice that you couldn't quite distinguish where he was from in the country uh -huh. and so i tried to adopt that as a kid i tried not to have a southern accent in a, we could probably psychoanalyze that for a little bit um, so did i so did i right so yeah. okay so we're there together um and so i really looked to my dad as as a marker of, of maybe what i wanted to do with my life so he was in radio I was in love with sports, and then this desire for broadcasting happened. And so as an eight-year-old boy, Phil, I remember waking up 5.50 in the morning. Like, this was my own plan. I would wake up at 5.50 in the morning, take, like, a quick military-style shower, go get a bowl of cereal, set it up in front of the TV so I could watch a whole hour of Dan Patrick and Stuart Scott on SportsCenter. <laughs> because I wanted to be an ESPN sports 
sports center wow, anchor I didn't know that. Like, from the time I was eight years old. Um, and I had like this broadcast hair, like very serious for a little eight year old boy. Um, but I knew I wanted to use my voice and I knew I wanted to tell stories and I knew I loved sports. And so that was like the aspiration. That was the dream. As I went through high school, I developed a desire for telling stories through writing. And so I had these amazing creative writing teachers who would really pour into me in that way. And then we had a broadcast department in my high school. And so it really took me off on a journey. So I went to Northwestern University, studied journalism there, uh, graduated and went into the sports business at a small TV station in Eastern Kentucky. Um, And I did that for about a couple of years. And after doing that for a couple of years, I just felt, man, if I keep doing this, I'll just get nicer suits. I'll just have somebody else putting on my makeup. I'll be in a better studio, but I'll still be alone here in this studio talking to a camera. And I realized that there was something more to what I wanted for life and what I wanted for storytelling, which I began to center as like a part of who I was. And so our church back in Arkansas, this church that had raised us up, called me and my wife uh, back home to Arkansas. And I served as a youth pastor there for seven years. And it was in that season where a good mentor of mine, a Japanese-American man named Taito Chino, took me under his wing and said, you're not just a youth pastor, you're, you're a pastor. And we're going to go through a long, slow process of apprenticeship and ordination. And I'm going to raise you up into the calling of a pastor because that's what I believe God's call is on your life. It took me probably about five years to receive that myself, but finally did. And so that was my journey from uh, the South in broadcasting to Chicago, where I was born, to go to undergrad over to Eastern Kentucky to do some TV. And then to realize, man, there is pastoral ministry over my life. And this is the story I want to tell. This is the story that I want to be a part of. This is where I want to use my voice and to bring that into the lives of other people. So hop, skip, and a jump from Arkansas out to California for Fuller Seminary, where the two of us met, where I saw the cool kid across the room (laughs) share his story in class. Who was that guy? (laughs) I got to tell you, um, it's cliche, but, but courage is contagious. And it's also compelling. And so... When you so courageously, and I love how Brene Brown links courage and vulnerability, that mm-hmm. they are so intertwined. Mm-hmm. When you so vulnerably and courageously shared your story, it was contagious for me, but it was also compelling. It drew me to you immediately. I said, mm. I just want to be, I want to be near. I want to be around. I want to be a part of this guy's life. I want to glean from whatever he has gained out of hard trauma, tragedy, where he can tell it in such a way that it's both broken and beautiful. Um, and so that's when I was first compelled to be a part of be a part of this intersection of life with you, my friend. Wow. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. I, I, I want to know, um, thanks for sharing. I didn't know that background. I didn't know you yeah. wanted to be on ESPN. Dude, I mean, still right now, put a camera in front of me, give me the suit, (laughs) I'll shave the beard. I'm ready to go. Like, put me in, coach. Wow. But, you know, how are you doing now? You know, I asked this question before I get into any conversation with a guest. Um, We're in some uncertain, unprecedented times with COVID-19, um, we all know someone that has it, 
possibly has died from it. I do. Um, or been really, really sick from it. And yet there are also people who downplay it. On top of that, you have the, the cluster, recent cluster of um, killing of um, unarmed black people that's been going on as long as we, I mean, we can go back hundreds of years, but certainly in recent times, it's been going, 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 captured on camera, and there's racial unrest. And we all process this these things differently. How have you been processing this? Um, how has it affected you? How are you caring for yourself? Um, especially coming from a white male perspective, which may be, which would be, not maybe, it will be different than what, how I'm processing from a black male perspective. Yeah. Um, so both from that specific perspective and also just from a human perspective, how are you processing this season that we're in? Thank you for asking. I think if more of us genuinely, earnestly ask that question to each other, we'd be better off just by having someone ask us the question. And so I hope that question is something that draws other people to turn to a neighbor and to ask that as well. And then to ask it of yourself. Um, I think that's maybe one of the most important lessons for me in this season has been to squarely sit with myself and go, how are you? Mm. Um, where are you hurting? Um, to pay attention to your body, to pay attention to your heart, your mind. Where's your soul suffering? Where are you struggling? And it's actually, it's really hard to know what that is until you've stopped. Uh, when I was in high school, I had this old 1982 Jeep CJ7 and it broke down 13 times. The tow truck guy knew me by name, <laughs> but dang, that thing looked cool and it felt good to drive. Um, but it was so rickety and so big uh, when you were going down the highway, when I, when I would park at school and I stopped and I turned the key off. It wasn't until that moment that I realized my arms were still shaking. To just trying to, to wrangle that thing, just yeah. trying to drive that thing, how much energy and effort it took. While I was driving it, pure adrenaline, you're just going. But when you park and you turn the key off, that's when you realize like, oh my gosh, that was, that was anxiety inducing. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty stressed out, actually. So I, I spent the first part of quarantine, stay at home, just trying to stop just trying to be parked in the parking lot and just trying to resist everything to just turn the key back on and to keep going. Um, I tried to create space in my life to grieve and to lament the loss in so many ways. At that time, I was a high school teacher, and so I had seniors, the class of 2020, was just sitting with them as so many of those markers that they had been looking for their whole life were beginning to fall off, whether that was sports seasons, proms, graduation was gonna look different, um, not sure what the fall was going to look like. And so it was a time of carrying not only my own pain, but also other people's as well. And then we moved from COVID um, to the loss of life of Ahmaud Aubrey, a man who was shot while going for a run um, by what I believe was white supremacists, um, exerting their own control and force into a situation that they had no business being a part of. And when that took place, uh, my co-pastor and Inez, uh, Nicaraguan, Latina, immigrant, um, dear sister, an incredible pastor, got on the phone with her white, blue-eyed brother from the Bible Belt South and 
And God has called the two of us, two of the most polarized bodies in this country, to come together to plant the church in Southern California. And it's times like these where we have to make very intentional decisions with each other about what does it look like for our church to step into this. Um, and sometimes it's a joint conversation. Sometimes it's something that we're going to put out together on social media or to our people. But it became very evident for us as we, as we really chopped it up that I needed to take the first step and be the first voice as a white man, intentionally speaking into it as a resistance, um, as a call, not to put myself first, but to actually bear the pain first, um, not to minimize the trauma that it might have upon a brown sister, um, a person of color, but to actually say, is this a place where you don't need to be re-traumatized by rehearsing the story and where instead I can stand up as an advocate. I can stand up as someone who's gonna stand in this gap, mourn with those who mourn. And I think that began a process throughout the past six months. Um, this season has unleashed my voice as a white man more than any other time before it. I believe it was all there. I believe that a dam just broke and it was time to, to fully speak, to fully live into uh, the calling. And, and I don't know if all of that would have happened apart from COVID. I don't know if all of that would have happened apart from uh, the deep brokenness that we're facing right now. Wow. You know, it, it, I, I was reading um, Moltman, Jurgen uh, Moltman recently, and as a, in his book, Theology and Joy, he talks about the role of the church and comparing it to Christ. He used this phrase, um, being for the other, that Christ dying on the cross was for the other, for those with no voice, for those in bondage, for those who needed to be set free. Christ was being for, being for the other. But then he said there has to be a point where you move to being with the other. Yeah. That Christ didn't just die for humanity. Yeah. Christ died as humanity, suffered yeah. with. There's a withness, there's a solidarity. Yeah. Right? And it yeah. seems like that's what you were feeling as I'm listening to you. And you said, I needed to be, I needed to speak into this not to be first, but to bear the pain or to acknowledge bearing the pain of this first. Yeah, I think people uh, seeing the two of us together in a ministry context, uh, seeing me and my co-pastor Ines together in a ministry context, that's, a, that's just a taste of John 17, what Jesus is praying, mm -hmm. that we would be one and that when we are one, the world will know mm -hmm. God, mm -hmm. the world will know Jesus, that somehow uh, our witness is a witness yeah. to the power yeah. of God. Um, that, that is something that, that only Jesus could have planned and dreamed up and designed and desired for his people. And I think that that's what we're trying to live into. Um, we're trying to step away from, I do me, you do you. Uh, but what would it look like for the pronouns to change for I, me and mine to become you, we, us, ours, and we're in this thing together. It was interesting. You said, you said, our, our witness can be our witness, and I, I feel like COVID nineteen presented us with the with that opportunity for witness hmm. because we're all in this, and that also feels backwards. So I'd love to hear you talk about that. Like it feels like we're not able to be together, but we are more together than we've ever been. And that's something. my point. My point yeah. is, 
COVID presented us with the opportunity, yet it has exposed how divided we are. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's a it. mask, the wearing or not wearing of a mask. Yep. Um, we were collective. We were at our own computers and phones and TV in front of our television um, around the world, around the nation for sure, sitting with each other, metaphorically speaking, watching mm -hmm. the video of George Floyd being murdered, watching Ahmaud, Ahmaud Arbery um, being shot and killed, seeing the, the, the text on, on the screen, the pictures of Breonna Taylor, and now Jacob Blake. Where, where there is a withness that's happening right now. Yeah. What do we do with the withness? Mm. Right? Whether you're yep. Christian or not, whether you're a believer or not, what are we going to do with this? And we've already shown that we, we, we are choosing the path, for many of us, the path of division. Right? Uh, and which, which, which confuses me, it, it blows my mind, that we have such an opportunity. Um, we had a chance to breathe. You talk about when you park and turn the key off. I, I think there's been a, you know, a forced parking. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, 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 the earth <laughs> or yeah. humanity has, has had to pull over on the side of the road and call a tow truck because of this pandemic. And many of us are still shaking. A tow truck driver who knows your name. Who knows your name. <laughs> And many of us right. are still shaking when, the, when, yep. we turn, when we turn the car off, as you share, just to continue yep. with your analogy. Yeah. But then there's some of us who are trying to pretend that we're not. Right. 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 And then it becomes, then the, the pretense becomes political, becomes a political statement. Mm -hmm. And you're, you acknowledging that you're shaking is made to be political. Acknowledging your trauma, acknowledging uh, the, 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 the systemic issues that are happening and have happened historically in our country, it's been politicized. When we have the opportunity to, to be with each other in this, yep. yet we're following a different path. And um, I don't know if you want to respond to that or, or not. Um, well, what do you think is a metric, a marker? Maybe that's a better word because metric feels too cold to, to a distance statistical uh, but what feels like a true marker of witness to you when can you see it when can you feel it when can you know that that's actually there and not just uh some shine some polish just to try to make things better great question i think the first thing i think about is lament shared mm. grief shared lament for me that's the first one of the first things i look for i want to know you may not and you said this in, in the film in my film open wounds you said i may not experience the same trauma right but there i can still feel it i can still grieve i can still i won't have the same embodied experience as a person of color as a black as phil did with his grandfather but i can still feel i'm paraphrasing a bit so lament yep. for me is the first thing if i don't see any type of grief mourning um then i don't think that there's a there's withness because I, I, th I think that becomes what, what propels us to, to be with or to operate with the other. Then the other thing I think is um, risk. So lament and then risk. 
is a person willing to speak out? Are they willing to stand with me at the risk of not having the same safety and security they, they experienced? They typically have the risk of losing relationships, the risk of black backlash. So those are two markers for me in terms of an individual standpoint or an organizational standpoint. Will that organization come out and not just speak to something, but will they have actions that follow up that um, say that there's, there's, there's lament and grief happening um, and that they're willing to risk even losing, or a pastor willing to risk losing congregants because this is the right thing to talk about. Yep. You know, yep. I got friends of mine, African-American friends of mine, who are in, 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 cor in corporate America, high-level positions, mm. and they're grieving, mm. and their grief is compounded because when they go into work, their white co co-workers, colleagues, can just jump back into work like everything's normal. Yeah. And they're saying, you guys realize this is not normal. What we saw is not normal. I'm hurting over here. And you came in bubbly and ready to jump back into work and talk in numbers. And I can't even think. And you're not even willing to attend to that or ask me, am I okay? I had many conversations like that. So those are two things I think about, lament and risk as markers for individual and collective um, witness. Lament feels powerless. It really does. And I think from a white male perspective, we don't know how to sit in that. We don't know what it's doing. We don't know what it's succeeding. Uh, we don't know what we're gaining as we're sitting in lament. Uh, we're just wondering, when can we move on? Mm -hmm. uh, when can this turn into something more productive? And because there's not a, a marker there's not a barometer of success for lament of when you've done it. Okay, now we can go on to the next thing. Um, and because we haven't been trained in that, um, our privilege has purchased us the opportunity to stay away from lament for most of our life. Unless we've lost individually, personally, a loved one mm -hmm. near and dear at some point in our life. Uh, we certainly don't understand um, and and I'll, I'll just share from my experience. We, I personally didn't understand the power of communally mourning, the power of communally lamenting. Yeah. Um, I didn't have someone like me when I was young get pulled over by the cops, get pulled out of a car, uh, get profiled shopping through a store, um, get shot in the back seven times as they're getting back in their vehicle. Um, now, if, that's, if the opposite of that is true for you, and you can identify with the body that has been broken, demoralized, dehumanized, uh, destroyed, I think that bears a different mark on you within your community, within your reality. And so I think the lamentation for you is necessary. It is, it is a healing time. It is a, it is a time to be restored remade for the, the ligaments to be put back together. And as a white man, that is something I've simply had to learn. And it's only come from proximity to people of color and pain in real time. Um, I can learn the history, I can study, um, I can take the class, but until I have real relationships with people of color in pain that I'm close to in real time, as the news cycle is happening, um, 
man, here, if you're not near, you're far. You are an ocean away. Um, you have to be saddled up right next to somebody for witness to be a reality. Has that ever been the case for you where um, what you just kind of described about not being willing to sit in the discomfort? You see, you, you say you had to learn communal lament. Um, has that been, a, was there a time when yeah. you couldn't sit in a conversation on race and racism and in the discomfort of that? Um, or have you always been willing to? Um, I didn't know any better when I was younger. I didn't know the, uh, the reality. And if I did, I certainly didn't want to see it. I grew up in Little Rock. I, I lived in West Little Rock, which was more middle class, upper middle class part of town. And each morning I'd hop on the bus and I would do the M to M transfer. And so I would move all the way across the city. And as I was sitting there on the bus from predominantly white, middle class, upper middle class, Little Rock, Arkansas, I would see the whole city change before my eyes. And change might be the nicest word to talk about the transformation. I would see it crumble. I would see it deteriorate before my eyes. I would see the cars, the buildings, the schools, the houses. Um, I would see everything begin to crack. The facade of uh, desegregation in Little Rock, Arkansas. Every morning on the bus, it was present in my pupils that this was not the reality. I would show up at school. Um, I would be among peers who looked different than me. But because I went back to my home every day, and because it was home where I had the birthday party, because it was home where I would play in the sports league, because it was home where I would shoot hoops in the driveway at any hour of night and feel totally safe and secure, um, I think that cocoon actually kept me blind from seeing the reality um, of the brokenness. When I think about trying to stay in the discomfort of it, um, there's a term that's, that's come up lately. It's, it's white noise. White noise is just this, this lulling sound in the background of all of the voices, all of the faces that would prevent you from speaking out. It would prevent you from staying in the conversation. And you just hear that noise of, of real people throughout my life when I was younger and when I was older that would try to keep you from engaging and just lull you back to sleep. We have, we have sound machines in the rooms of our house because it helps everybody fall asleep. I, I didn't have that growing up, but my wife did. And so when I got married, we were on board with the sound machine because wife was on board with the sound machine. So, but what it does is it neutralizes all the other noise. And it just lulls you to stay comfortable. And so for me, um, I think I lived for a long time in the white noise. The white noise that just lulled me to sleep and kept me from standing up and really seeing. Because I needed to see before I could speak. So I didn't see for so long. Um, I didn't see until the church that I grew up in really had a catalytic, transformative, plant a flag in the ground. Here's the stake. We're making a change. And we can talk about that in a moment, but until that church decided to take that step, I had no idea the reality that I had lived my whole life. It had all just felt normative. It had all just felt like white noise. Yeah. So, so how did you, you know, you talk about seeing the city crumble before your eyes as you were on the bus. Um, how did you respond to that? Like, did it affect you deeply or was it just something you noticed and felt, okay, this is just what it is. 
nothing I can do about it. Um, how do you, I asked that question because, you know, as, as a black man, you know, I, I grew up in the South and, but not just in the South, in any city, you can travel from one part to the other and you could see the difference. You know, you, right. you knew right. that, you knew that, that street that once you cross that street, yep, everything changes. And yep. as a kid, you're processing like, why is it like literally on this side of the street and going the other way? Houses look a certain way. The people look a certain way. You cross this street and the stores are better. The land landscaping is better. Houses are better. Why is that? And so for me, I did feel powerless. Now, I yeah. was exposed to black history. I was exposed to um, the struggle. Um, I didn't I didn't immerse myself as much as I should have, but I was exposed to it and I knew I had some language for it. But how did that affect you seeing that? Did you feel powerless or did you want, did you feel like there's, there's something in you that, okay, something has to change. It's not supposed to be like this. Yeah, it's not supposed to be like this. Um, and I think I, I think I would have said I felt powerless. I think I even described it as that. But I think if I sit with your words for a minute here in this conversation, I think I probably felt powerful. I think mm -hmm. I felt like when I went back home, I had more access to power. I think when I felt, when I went home, I felt safer. I felt more secure. I felt grateful that I did not live where I went to school. Uh, I felt grateful that the cars in my driveway uh, looked different than the cars on the other side of town. And so I think I knew that I actually had greater access to power and I wouldn't have wanted that to change because yeah. it made my life better. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Was, um, okay, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I was going to say, it's interesting you said you felt safer when you went back home because for me and for many of my friends, we felt safer when we went back home. For sure. Because we knew, you just knew inherently that if you did the wrong thing, if you were looking at, like, at a house too long, if yep. you were cutting across the grass, you know, taking a shortcut rather than walking the sidewalk and making a sharp turn, you kind of cut across the grass. I mean, you just, you're almost like walk, walking on eggshells. Yep. Like there was some, it felt like there was surveillance. Yep. You know, cameras in the trees, cameras, someone watching from the houses. So you felt you like you could breathe. There was surveillance. When you, <laughs> <laughs> it didn't just feel like it. You were being watched. Wow. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's real. And I imagine wherever you drove, wherever you shopped, wherever you stopped. Um, as a basketball player, I imagine there were gyms that you walked into, yep. uh, schools that you stepped into, that it felt a little different getting off the bus. Um, we're talking about discipleship though right now without using the word. I was discipled into a world that did not include race. Mm. I was discipled into a world where whiteness was normative and it was sold as just, this is just middle-class life. This is just middle-class American life um white wasn't really talked about race wasn't talked about much it was just this is the american dream of normative life um and so i had no idea i mean i did I, I could see it with my eyes i could see the distinction i could tell what was the only real marker of difference here um but i wasn't discipled into understanding what that was mm. i didn't i didn't have a single deeply formative relationship with a person of color in my life. I might've had friends at school, um, might've had a friend on a soccer team here or there. Um, 
but no real relationships of value. Mm. Well, you know, just to shift a little bit, that has changed. Yeah. In your life. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to read, I want to read something that you posted um, recently. I think it was three days ago on Facebook, on social media. You said, I've argued with police when I felt they were wrong. I've turned my back on police when they were disrespectful. I've walked away from police when they were on a power trip. But not once did I worry about police pulling their weapon. Not once did I think I could be shot in the back as a retaliation. Not once did I consider this encounter could cost me my life. But I am a white man. And this is America. That's that's powerful. That is that is arresting when I read that and I, I, I read it and I almost skipped past it because I was just tired that day. Yeah. Being it was one of those days when you read you go through social media yeah. and yeah. and there's comment after comment, everyone has but usually I'll stop when you when you post something because mm -hmm. I, I just know it's gonna be something profound, thought provoking, well thought out. And I just sat on that for a little bit. I wrote a blog called This is America mm. recently. Yep. But I just sat on that for, for a minute, man. Um, so you say you were discipled in a world that did not discuss or include race. Right. Clearly, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, you are speaking and posting and engaging and leading and discipling in a way that is that race is fairly central or at least not on the margins right. what was the change in your discipleship and i want to talk a little bit more about posts like these but first let's start with what was the change in your life in in, in, in terms of discipleship that that now included the dialogue of race i took a class at fuller seminary that actually was about conversion and it was about change and it came at it from every lens you could possibly, sociologically, psychologically, theologically. And one of the things that most marked me was this difference of a style of conversion. So a lot of times as followers of Christ, as pastors and preachers, we come to a $10 word here, the, the punctiliar conversion, that, that punctuation mark like Paul, light, scales, change, everything happened in that moment. And as the preacher, it's getting to the end of your sermon and realizing I haven't done the altar call yet. I need to go ahead and give an altar call. So somebody right here, right now, uh, you've got 10 seconds for your life to change and uh, just give me nine more seconds. And so we got to that moment. And I think that's what I always thought about with conversion until my professor in seminary said, you know, there's another type of conversion too. It's the conversion of the disciples who sat with Jesus for three years, who walked with Jesus for three years. That was good. And they, they didn't have that one moment on the road. They had a ton of moments, small moments, quiet moments, loud moments, moments with demons, moments with oceans, moments with um, miracles, moments around a table, moments where their, their savior died and they thought the story was over, moments where he came back, and moments where they had to release him again. And so there was these slow conversions over many years. And I think when we think about race, uh, I'm hesitant to preach a message, especially to my white sisters and brothers of an Apostle Paul on the road conversion. 
where was the one marker that forever opened your eyes and now you're woke and awake and you're all in. Instead, I want to lead people into a discipleship that looks much closer, much more like Jesus with his disciples, that was slower and steadier. That was my story. Um, the church that I grew up in was a homogeneously white church for two decades. Non-denominational, Bible Belt South, I would say mostly progressive, um, and yet still very white and hadn't really talked about it, hadn't really discussed it. Our lead pastor, this brave, adventurous, courageous mountain of a man, had an awakening, though, that just began to stir something in his spirit. And, and over many years, he would just have this thought of, I don't know if our church looks like our community. And I think maybe the Bible has something to say about that. He was then invited to go to a conference in Georgia where you could not come only with another representative of your own race, but actually had to go with somebody that looked different than you. That was kind of your entry into the conference. And so he went to the conference with a black man. And so a white man and a black man went to this. And, and that he came back from that conference with a catalytic change of saying, this church will no longer be a church that is only white people pursuing Jesus together. In fact, I'm going to hire a co-pastor alongside of me, and that pastor will not be white. And so he hired a black co-pastor alongside of him, and the two of them led this church that I was part of. So my discipleship into race actually came in and through the church. And the church began to have these conversations. We would call them talk it out, where you would get into a group of people, and you couldn't be at a table with only people that looked like you. Uh, this is where I first encountered the term white privilege before it ever showed up on CNN or Fox or MSNBC or, or all Facebook posts all these days. Like it was in the church that I was discipled into this. And then from the church, I knew that I had this God-sized calling on my life to step into pastoral ministry. I'd been apprenticed into that. And I went to Fuller Seminary. One of the main reasons I went to Fuller Seminary is because when I looked at Fuller from afar from Arkansas, Fuller looked like the kingdom of heaven. It looked like revelation. There was... <laughs> More denominations represented, there was more race, nationality, ethnicities represented than anything I experienced within the predominantly black-white binary of the Bible Belt South. Yeah. And so I came out to Fuller, I went to my first Fuller Chapel, and I was like, holy Moses, Like this is a slice of heaven. Um, never had I ever gotten to sing in the languages or, or worship in the proximity with so many different people who all were pointed towards Jesus, but came from so many different tribes and nations and tongues. Um, and then I sat in Dr. Love Seacrest's class. Yes, yes. Race and ethnic identity in the New Testament. And my life was flipped upside down. I mean, perhaps if there is one marker of formative change, it was the slow study of sitting in the scriptures with an African-American woman professor who was patient, but who was fierce who was bold, who could flip the scriptures, who could develop a biblical imagination for us. And it, I'll tell you what it did. It, it turned scriptures into a world where I could begin to see these aren't just ideas. This is God's truth in a way that is ever expanding. It is ever expanding. Um, I developed a friendship with a dear friend back home named Inez McBride, who is a Latina immigrant who I'm co-pastoring a church with. And that moved me from the black-white binary now to a Latina and what that looked like, not only to experience life as a white male or with my black brothers and sisters, but now in the brown community and especially as a woman in her perspective and the intersectionality of that. I started attending a church called Fellowship Monrovia. And while the church was 
uh, beautifully multi-ethnic, the thing that I was even more drawn to was they opened up a center for racial reconciliation where they said, we're not just going to talk about this within the Sunday experience. uh, We're actually going to create a space to formatively dive into this. Um, And the first thing that they do is they, in the summer of 2016, in the midst of a racial reckoning and trauma and violence that happened those summers ago, they had a lament service. That was how they started. And so for me, that opened up my heart and my eyes to lamentation and to lament. And I remember going, why are we starting here? And then I remember leaving the lament service going, there's no other place to start. Of course we had to start there. Of course we had to be together and to cry together. Um, In each of these stories, I'm telling you, I mean, they're filled with years. They're filled with books. They're filled with conversations. They're filled with real people. They're filled with uh, meals. But each one of them is a conversation, Phil. Uh, a conversation that leads to a conversion. Mm. I was having many conversions, many awakenings. Um, And even right now, even in this season that we're living right now, more conversions, more conversations, more awakenings are happening in my life. I'm not arrived. Uh, I'm just continually allowing God to disciple me into this more and more one step at a time. Yeah. You know, that's important to, to know. Um, I think one of the things that we've gotten in trouble with in the church is we've made a hierarchy of these moments of conversion. We, we've placed at the top that um, Paul on the Damascus, Damascus Road conversion as the way it's supposed to be. You share your faith, you share the gospel, and someone is supposed to be uh, coming to this revelation and accept Christ and their lives will be changed. Do you think because it feels like a win, like yeah. it just feels like an achievement, we did it? Absolutely. We, we, that's part of our ethos is um, yeah. uh, accomplishing. Um, it, it gives, because, because the gradual socialization, yeah. Paul, Paul Vitz in his book, Father to the Fatherless or Father of the Fatherless, he writes about um, gradual socialization um, can be sustained. That's, that's what's sustained when people are, looking to change or be transformed rather than the immediate um, moment where they change, get on fire for something and then they end up fizzling. But that gradual thing that you described is, is is more way way more effective. And that that happens through relationships and not treating people like projects. But I think that's what, what we do because that we want purpose in everything that we do. We want a goal for everything that we do. It becomes almost like a game. Right. Yep. Um, I imagine for you as as a runner, um, I don't even know if you'd use that word for yourself yet, you, or if you're just a man who runs. Uh, I'm, a runner. A, I'm a runner. Okay. I'm a runner. There's a transition, <laughs> right? There is a transition. Yeah. You were someone who just went for runs. Yes. And, yes. Um, and the achievement wasn't just finishing the run. You were actually thinking of all sorts of things of what I could do differently next time, how I could be better shape. What should I eat? What should I drink? Absolutely. Uh, so all these conversions are happening that then leads you to someone who is now a runner. Absolutely. I, I would not say I was a runner within the first six months. Yeah. I would just say I run because I felt like there were people who this is who they are. And who am I to, to just come into this and say, oh, I'm this now. Right. Or filmmaker. People would say, well, you got to say you're a filmmaker. I still am uncomfortable with that because there are people who spent years decades developing this craft this passion and i produce a film which i was 
intimately involved in you know the, pr the production of it i have a director um for it but i was uncomfortable saying i'm a filmmaker right i'd rather say i'm a storyteller or i produced a film um but i'm becoming more comfortable mm -hmm. taking on mm -hmm. that as i learn same thing with being a runner um you you and so for you, my white brothers and sisters um just to bring the analogy home for, for them who are listening, um, stepping into the conversations of race, of solidarity. Um, I've been in this now intentionally with my face turned toward it uh, for 12 years. And I, I don't know when the marker was where I became someone who said, this is what my life will now also be about. And that is not um, apart from the gospel, but is living into the truth of the gospel as Paul talks about in Galatians chapter two, um, when he's speaking truth to Peter. But there was a moment where it was no longer just, I'm on the sideline and um, I'm gonna dip in and out when I can. And there was also a moment when I couldn't have stepped in yet. I wasn't ready. I was still listening. I was still learning. Um, it was not the place for the white man to speak up yet because I was in far over my head. I, I was in kindergarten and everybody else was in grad school. But there were moments where at some point you have to step in and stop just lacing up the shoes, but recognize your identity as a runner, as a reconciler, whatever the Lord puts on your heart to call you into this work. Let's take a quick break. Let's pause right there and we'll come back and continue our conversation. You are listening to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr. The following is a trailer to the documentary short film, Open Windows. I have a story to tell, a story of pain, of loss, of gain, of cost. The story of trauma, the drama of birth and new birth, lost and found self-worth. Before Emmett Till, there was Nate Allen my grandfather. His body found face down, floating in the Sandpit River, at the hands of a racist pulling a rifle's trigger. In this story, I gave racism a name. I call him Cain, since he rendered my grandfather unable to speak the truth about what happened on that river in the Low Country, home of the Gullah-speaking Geechees that raised me. But the voice of his blood cries out from the earth, and the question is, who's listening? You can view Open Wounds right now at openwoundsdoc.com. That's openwoundsdoc.com. Now, let's get back to the conversation. When you, when I read a post like the one I just read, um, I, I can only imagine that there are people, friends, family, um, that know and love you, that may not agree. They may not be where you are. Um, have you gotten backlash, pushback from the things that you share, you post? Um, and if so, how do you respond? How do you handle that? Because a lot of people, a lot of white um, brothers and sisters I talk to, that's the biggest fear of getting in, of engaging is the backlash. 
Um, yeah. So they, they stay quiet or they do it only in certain in safe spaces, but they don't share it with family and friends. Um, they don't say it as much publicly or they kind of carefully word their, their posts in a way that doesn't offend. Yes. But you, you almost have to offend in, in yes. situations like these. So have you gotten backlash? And if so, how have you um, responded? How have you handled that? Uh, the exact post that you're referring to from three days ago was filled with all sorts of backlash, um, all sorts of conversations filled both on the actual comment wall and then conversations that were happening privately in messages and beyond. Um, and before I even post it, I still, I still hear the white noise. I still hear that noise that could lull me back to sleep and step me away from my computer or phone to type that, to type that post. Even though if I feel like that's the truest thing to say, and I feel this conviction to, to put it out there, there is still this temptation to fall back into comfort. But that's privilege. Mm-hmm. It really is. And, and that's why the term ally is both, I think, accurate, um, but also offensive. It, it's accurate because I do get to choose whether or not to be an ally. I do get to choose whether or not to engage. It is a choice for a white man. To step into this conversation or to just turn and walk away and not have to face it um and that's also offensive why, it's offensive that why, for me, why it's is a it choice. offensive and who is it offensive to um in my experience it's been offensive to um different conversations i've had with people of color who are saying it's not a choice for me um and so i'm offended that it gets to be a choice for you even if that is reality um, it's almost, it's almost communicating it too much in a way that can almost feel cavalier. That can feel cheap. That can feel like, oh, you get to step in or step out. Um, but I would say to them, yeah. I, I, I struggle with that. I struggle with that statement because I understand it. And I was probably there at one point thinking the same thing, but for me, it would only be offensive if you treated it cavalierly. Right. If you treated it as, well, I can do this or not, if you are inconsistent. But the moment you decide that you're all in. Right. And you've laid down that privilege. Yes. It's no longer offensive to me. Right. Because then you, you come back to the cross. Does the fact that Jesus had a choice because he said himself. Right. No one takes yes. my life. I lay my life down. Is that offensive to me? No, once he's all in and decides he's going to that cross, it's no longer an offense. It is like, wow. Mm. Right? So I I struggle with that idea that, I mean, the offense is is the reality, not not the... Yes. The the, the offense is the fact that that there is a choice and I don't have a choice. That's the offense. And maybe that's what they're saying. Yeah, I think it is, but you bear it. Like it, it centers at the end of the day on you as uh, the white man. And, and I think that's ours to bear. I don't think that's ours to sort of try to change the conversation. I think it is actually part of one of the things that we're supposed to bear. Philippians 2 with Christ and to say, I will wear this. I will lay it down and I will walk with you and, and hurt with you and bear the pain with you as much as I can. Um, 
So stepping into a post, I've, I've just kind of talked a little bit abstractly about before you even get to the post um, and feeling that white noise that could prevent you from stepping in, but that is an active privilege. And so what it means to actually post it and then to start to receive not just the like and the heart and the comment and all that kind of stuff, but, but the person who's now resistant. Uh, I've tried to learn, and this is from pastoral ministry too, when you say something in the pulpit, especially in a white church, and you're coming down out of the pulpit and there's somebody right there ready for you and they're not ready to give you a hug. <laughs> they're yeah, not ready to yeah. tell you that their life has changed. Yeah. Um, they're ready to tell you where you were wrong. Um, so you better get it right second service. Um, <laughs> I've, learned, <laughs> I've learned first as best as I can. Uh, the first step is to lean in, listen, and learn and try to get something from this person that could be good. Um, and that has hurt me. That has cost me. I have given too many people the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. I've given too many people too much of my heart when they didn't do anything to deserve it. Um, and so I've been, I've been cut by that um, more than maybe I needed to be. And yet I just, I don't know another way um, because I want to give this person the worth of their voice, um, even if I disagree with it. So I want to lean in. I want to listen to what they're saying. I want to potentially learn something from their perspective because I need their perspective too. But I'm aiming for a real conversation. Um, I'm going to step away if I'm being shouted at. I'm going to I'm going to delete your comment on Facebook if it is abusive and re-traumatizing to other people who might see it on my page. Um, if you're going to shout at me in a message on social media. You don't have to get my full attention back. Um, but I know within this, I also don't carry it alone. Whatever I'm taking on, whatever this person is shouting back at me, is not something that I have to wear. It's not something that I have to bear. Um, you can turn your body in such a way to just take part of the hit and then let the rest go on. Uh, let the rest just just fall past you because it wasn't for you so many of these conversations that aren't conversations where it's just somebody shouting at you has far little to do with what you just posted yeah they are bringing all sorts of other baggage and noise to the table that you didn't say so often the response i give back isn't met with a thoughtful oh you know what that's a good point let's talk about that some more um, so i am just guessing this has happened to you uh, but you received the comment from somebody ready to digest it, sit with it, and then write a thoughtful, meaningful response to it. I mean, you've labored. You put some you put some love into this thing. You read it over. You may have even had a friend read it over just to go, am I okay? Am I saying anything here? And then you send it back out into cyberspace and you await for that really thoughtful response back. Um, and then way quicker than your response comes stream of consciousness full blast somebody wrote six paragraphs in about 60 seconds and you read through it and they are now six completely different issues that have been brought to the surface and you realize this was not a conversation nothing i just said was retained we're not going back and forth um, they just have talking points they're really upset about and you highlighted something in their world that they're mad about and they're going to shout it at you so you you bear the brunt of it and at that point, that's when you go, it's okay to walk away. It's okay to step away from people who are not looking to dialogue because you're not going to win them over. And so to just release that and then to look for the people who will actually have real conversations with you, even 
and especially if you de- de- uh, disagree, because I think that's where real good change can actually happen. Yeah. You know, I, I tell people often, um, <laughs> I, I say this as I got into a short debate a few days ago myself. Right. A friend of mine tagged me in a post and I said, I don't debate. I was talking to him and I said, mm-hmm. I don't debate with people. You know, my old pastor said, you can't convince a convinced mind. Mm. And so I took that to heart and I walk away. Yeah. But I was purposely saying some things knowing that they would read my, my post, but I didn't think they would respond because they said that they were done. Right. But I didn't tag them. I just responded to my friend and they responded to me. And then I responded to them. Now I'm in this debate. Mm. And I, I tell mm. people often, um, you need to decide who you're going to give your time and energy to. Yeah. Yeah. As part yeah. of your own self-care. Yep. You need to be efficient with your time and energy and find the spaces and the people that actually want to have dialogue. Because that's, like you said, that's where the change happens. That's where progress right. can, be made, can be made. And Phil, maybe this is arrogant, um, but one of the things I'm aiming to do is to model healthy discourse. And so when I'm having the conversation with the person that's shouting with me, with my response, I know other people are looking in on that. Yes. So I'm trying to model, yes. here's a healthy way to, yes. to stay in it. Yes. <laughs> you know? Um, and so maybe that's arrogant on my part, Ooh. thinking that I'm doing something so righteous and good that other people are going to be blessed by it. But that's that's at least one reason why I stay in it for just a moment rather than just walking away. Because I know what I'm not doing it for just that one person. Yeah. I used to do the same thing. I used to tell people, I'm not really trying to convince the other person. I'm really doing yeah. this for the people I know who are reading the thread. Because yes. they're, they're learning too. Yes. And then I realize, but the dialogue, the debate, the back and forth is still having an effect on me. Mm. And so I had That's to good. learn to pull back because I walk away. And when the key is turned off of that, that debate, I'm still yep. shaking. Yep. Figuratively speaking. You talk about backlash um, and uh, your experience at your church in Arkansas um, was more than backlash when you began to shift in your thinking and your messaging. Um, do you, are you, do you feel comfortable sharing about that experience? Because um, as we've talked and, and you've shared, um, you left in a different condition than when you entered that church and grew in that church, the church that yep. discipled you in this in the first place where you were made aware and, you know, one of those conversion moments. Yes. But um, it didn't end well for you and your, and your wife and your family. Um, Do you mind sharing about that experience? Yeah. And I share not in any sort of retaliatory, uh, revengeful, spiteful sense, but I share knowing that there are so many others who find themselves in such similar contexts uh, who are doing brave, good work. Um, at graduation at Fuller, I remember Dr. Love Seacrest putting her hands on my shoulders, looking me squarely in the eyes and said, you're going back home? And I was like, why she say it with a catch in her voice like that? Like, why she, why she already worried for me? And she said, Bobby, that's a hard calling. That's a hard calling. And, and I was coming home as the golden boy. I was coming home as the one that they had raised up in, in eighth grade at this church. I heard the gospel for the first time at a camp. I had never heard the gospel before in my life. 
it, and I, I right then and there on a Sunday with tears in my eyes, I said, I'm in. I had my first small group in this church as a 10th grader. I interned at this church after my freshman year of college. I came back after my senior year and served at the church for six months before I went off to broadcasting. Um, I came back after broadcasting and served at the church for seven years as a youth pastor. I was ordained in the church. I proposed to my wife on the stage at that church. Um, our babies were, were born and raised up in that church. And then we went off to seminary and didn't know we were going back to that church. And then called called us back to that church. And when God called us back to that church, it, it wasn't what was on our heart's desire, first and foremost. We have so many people that we love back there and that we would love to be in relationship, but it felt like we had this other ministry desire to be able to go full speed ahead, um, not only on the conversation and the reality of race, but also within women in all levels of leadership. That was something that God had solidified during my time at seminary, and this was something that was not allowed at the church back in Arkansas. So it felt like going against the grain of who we had become. And when we got back home, I remember immediate conversations with people saying, you've changed. And it was said, uh, Phil, with such uh, suspicion. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't said of like, oh, you've changed. Uh, It was, you've changed uh, in a way that made it sound like you you forgot where you came from and you forgot who we are. Um, And yet this is a church that at this point had been full speed ahead in the conversation of race and reconciliation and discipleship since 2006. But I'll tell you what, 10 years after 2006 came 2016, and that changed the church. When we first came back, walked around in that lobby, we felt a different air. We felt a different atmosphere. This was a church that I would describe as the church with all the bumper stickers. When you pull up into the parking lot, you're like, what in the world could bring all these people together? Uh, you got the NRA sticker next to the Obama sticker next to the we tolerate any and everybody sticker. And, and all these people are sharing space on a Sunday. And it wasn't what could bring these people together, but who? Jesus is powerful enough to bring these different people together. But in 2016, there was a power that began to possess people that was greater than the power that they had given allegiance to in Jesus. And people began to form camps in a way that I hadn't seen. I'm still a young man, so I don't want to say anything that uh, makes anybody else go, well, you haven't lived enough life to know. But I hadn't seen anything like that. I hadn't seen people uh, go back into their camps in a way that said, nothing is going to pull us back together. Um, but I wanted to call this church back to its true identity. Like this is what we were about. We were going to be a church that speaks openly and honestly. So I remember on a Sunday, uh, pulling out the different hats that we wear that could divide us. And I pulled out a make America great again hat. And I talked about how different people perceive that that hat, Mm, mm, that mm. for some people, this hat, uh, calls them back into some sort of comfort of the way things once were in some establishment back of of a sense of order and well-being but for other people this same hat brings fear um, and it's this hard to be in community when this one hat this one image could do two different things unless we're willing to listen to each other on that when colin kaepernick was kneeling came before a congregation and said, if we're going to talk about it out there, if we're going to talk about it on Facebook, we're going to talk about it here in this church. And so tried to call us together that there is uh, a message 
that is being communicated by Colin Kaepernick. But some of us are so upset by the method that we can no longer share the mission. And so what would it look like for us to be able to receive and hold both the method and the message to learn from each other in the midst of that, to get back on shared mission together? There was an older white lady who walked straight up out of that sermon before hearing anything I said as soon as she heard the word Kaepernick, as soon as she heard the man's name. There was no space in her mind for how a church could look at this through the heart of God. There was just a, the conversation was over just by mentioning the man's name. That's what it provoked in people. Mm. Um, I hope you got a, a beat button on the producer here in a second because when Donald Trump allegedly talked about shithole countries, mm -hmm. um, that was something that we were going to address on a Sunday when I was talking about God's heart for all nations. Mm -hmm. If we're going to talk about the love of God for all nations, and just that week in our news cycle, the current occupant of the Oval Office talks about countries in such a way that is not only degradating, but is also dehumanizing. Mm -hmm. We're going to address that as the church. But every time we stepped into one of those spaces, it made um, our predominantly white male older men more uncomfortable. And then if you combine that with the intersectionality of a pastor who has a heart for women in all levels of leadership in the local church. So now we're not only holding up a passion for race, but also gender equity and equality. Those two things were a toxic storm. And so over the course of two years, it became evident in our spirit that we weren't supposed to be there long, but that we were supposed to be catalysts for change. And um, I'd never experienced a place that was a catalyst for change, that the change meant brokenness. I believe that we were called to step back into that space to be a part of the breaking of that space. Mm. Um, and that's a, that's a truth that took me a lot of theological unpacking to figure out what in the world that meant, because I really believe the Spirit sent us back there. Um, and I don't use this word lightly, and I don't consider myself a prophet, but, but I know that a prophet's not welcome in their own hometown. Mm -hmm. And I know that the world that God was asking us to speak into was a world of power and to speak truth to that power. And that's the word of the prophet. It's not done with pride. In fact, it's done with a lot of pain. Uh, the prophets lived in a lot of yeah. pain, yeah. a lot of brokenness. They weren't excited to be handed a microphone. There was a lot of fear and trembling every time they, they stood back up in that. Uh, well, they didn't get to stand in the pulpit. They were, they were on a street corner holding a sign, more likely. Um, they were kneeling somewhere, more likely. Um, they were refusing to be sworn to the power of a hat somewhere, more likely. You mean um, they didn't have mega churches? <laughs> they, had, they, they had some powerful connections between church and state, what they called the temple and the power of Rome. And, and I believe we're living in eerily similar times, uh, my friend. Um, so I actually, I tried to do the generous thing and say, I'm out, but I'll stick around for a few months and just try to be here until y'all can find someone else. Um, but less and less, they wanted me in the pulpit less and less. And um, more and more, there was actual, um, there's actual demands for my resignation multiple times uh, because I had personally divided the church. Um, things that I had said or done were allegedly held in such a way that I was the sole reason this church was falling apart. Um, 
not a perspective that was willing to reflect and ask the much bigger question of, wait, weren't things messy before Bobby came back? Weren't we already feeling some things? Weren't some things already stirring and breaking? Um, but instead, it was, it was able to be put upon me. Um, and so in April of 2019, I stepped away from that church. Took a few months to lament, to heal back up, and then we moved back out to California. How did it impact your wife and your children? Um, I would imagine there's some overlap in terms of intensity and the level of um, pain and trauma. Um, but it, I also know that it would be different because you're, you're, you're the one whose resignation they're asking for. You're the one with the accusa accusations. But how did it impact um, your wife, Amy, and your children? My wife said it felt like uh, how she could imagine what it would be to be married to a boxer. And mm. she wasn't able to step into the spaces that I was stepping into. Women weren't allowed in the elders meeting. And so I would go into that meeting and come back home and be torn to shreds. Um, and she would just have to hold me. Um, I mean, these are times in my life where I would come back from a meeting and literally be on my knees in my wife's lap, um, guttural, like the guttural cry uh, just coming out and her needing to just hold it. And my wife has such a bone against injustice uh, that she just wanted to be able to say something to change something. But I felt so called to try to continue to walk in kindness. I thought I could change it. I thought if I'll just remain kind and giving and thoughtful that at some point this will do something that if I continue to have compassion, if I continue to be generous, if I continue to take the hit uh, while still speaking truth, if I continue to just bear this pain that at some point it'll, it'll profit in some way and yet things just kept breaking more and more. And as my wife is writing down her thoughts and wanting to share this and share it with the more public, I just felt like we can't dishonor these men yet. Like, what if they change? What if something happens? Um, and they just wouldn't. They kept digging their heels in. My wife finally showed up at an elders meeting because I asked for permission and she came and she read a letter just, just laying out the full things. Just here's all the ways that things have been broken. And they heard it and they just said, wow, thank you for sharing. Wow. It wasn't, it wasn't the compassion of shepherds reaching yeah. across the room and holding a woman who was broken in her anger and pain. There was such a distance and a callousness. Um, I'm convinced that what people want most is not the pursuit of truth, but the pursuit of rightness. Mm -hmm. right, rightness is our golden calf. Yeah. Yeah. You wanna be right. And so even if you write a letter that actually exposes some truth, I'm gonna be resistant to that truth because it doesn't make me feel right anymore. Yeah. I need to go whatever I can do to go back to pursuing the sense of rightness. And that means in this moment, dismissing your pain. Wow. Um, I'm, I'm sorry that you guys had to go through that. Um, I know the pain, um, church hurt. I, I know that pain, um, particularly from people you believe love you or you've done life with. So I'm sorry you all had to experience that, man. But I know you're stronger, better more wise and even more equipped moving forward um, coming out of that season. Um, my, my, my last question Thank for you, you 
you're, yeah, you're welcome. My last question for you is um, tell us a little bit about the church we hope for, um, especially coming out of that experience and into a fresh new experience um, where you can lay a new foundation um, with your co-pastor, Inez McBride. Um, tell us a little bit about that church we hope for. I did not grow up in a world, again, that I was discipled into church planting. I didn't know that that existed. Our church has existed back home for 30 plus years and I never planted another church. And so that was not something I ever considered, not something that crossed my mind, but I came out to Fuller and it was a part of the conversation. And it was something even some of my peers would put upon me in seminary. It's like, oh, you should consider planting a church. It's like, what do I have to offer that would need to necessitate entrepreneurial spirit to start something new? Um, but it planted a seed, and there was something there. And then my sister Inez came out um, to seminary with her husband and her son. And there was this kindred spirit connection, this kinetic energy when we led together in worship spaces that we began to think there's something here that unites us, um, not just apart from race and ethnicity and gender, but living even into the fullness of that that calls us into a, an even more beautiful expression of the worship of God, um, that we began to wonder, is there something here? Like, are we supposed to plant something together? And then I got called back to our home church. And I invited her into that discernment process with us. And she's, she called me crying one day saying, I, I believe that God's calling me back home. And so this dream that we had begun just playfully, lightheartedly dreaming up for a little bit, we had to let go. And I went back home, and when I went back home, I was I was committed to being there. I was just going to be present. I wasn't going to hold on to that dream anymore, and so that was really hard. There was some brokenness that had to happen to let go of that dream of this church that we had hoped for, we had to release because God had called us into something else. Wow. And then the dream came back to us, actually through brokenness. I was in an elders meeting. We had just invited, uh, through a lot of prayer, uh, Ines to come back and to speak on a Sunday as she was home for summer from seminary. It took a lot of, of work for our elders to get there, even though she had preached in that pulpit three times prior to that. But again, things had changed in 2016. And as we were having conversations about that, an elder said, you know, she may be able to come back here and speak this summer. But she, nor any other woman, will ever be a pastor in this church. And when the man said that in that elders meeting, something broke in my spirit that I've never been able to put back together. It was like having the theological reality of racial solidarity, of, of justice in your heart yeah. that you knew academically, even mentally, even theologically, but until you feel it, it was the same for me in my, my conversion process of women in all levels of leadership. That was the moment when it broke. And I went home, I cried with my wife, and then we called Ines. And we said, this is what happened today. Something broke in me. And when I sat with the Lord with that brokenness, and I said, well, Lord, if we're not going to do that, if we could dream up anything, what would we want to do? What would be our greatest hope for the local church, for us to live into? And God put an S on our hearts. God put an S straight on my heart as the two of us leading a church together, a white man and a brown woman, side by side, 
a church that is not only timely, but timeless, that points to time eternal, that calls us into living into the fullness of the kingdom of God. And this church is a church that is not afraid of power. Um, we get asked a lot, when push comes to shove, which one of you is going to be in power if you're co-lead pastors? And we say, first and foremost, can we not have the pushing and shoving? Can we be in a relationship where push doesn't have to come to shove? Can we live into a relationship where we're actually uh, more willing to release power than to fight over it? And that's been the model of Anazanai's friendship over the past decade, is that we've been in spaces and one of us can look at the other and go, hey, I think you're supposed to lead us into this space today. And the other says, I trust you. Take us there. And wherever you go, I'll follow. And we believe that we're not tapping into a lesser power by sharing power. We actually believe that we're tapping into a greater power by sharing power. The power we possess is the power to share. And that's a power that points us back to the Father, Son, and Spirit. That's Trinitarian power. Yep. That's a greater power and so we're not afraid of the power dynamics of our relationship and all of the intersectionalities that the world would bring before us and have us to wrestle with. Uh, we actually believe that those powers uh, are lesser than the power of God to bring us together. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel that brought Annette and I together to lead this church that we had hoped for for a long time, that God has now called us to plant in Southern California side by side. Wow. Man, I, I, I so appreciate um, all that you've shared. Um, you know, you talk about releasing power and that being kind of central to the success of the co-leadership. Co um, I think it's central to the gospel message, as you shared. It's Trinitarian, um, it's a Trinitarian, uh, I guess, ethic or ethos. Um, but it's that releasing of power that I think is central, uh, essential to racial solidarity. Yes. Um, I think we live in a context where everyone is grasping for power. Um, yeah. Even the vulnerable, mm. um, which makes sense when you're powerless, you're grasping for power. Um, but the powerful never wants to relinquish power. Um, I think it's essential for healing, this releasing yeah. of power. Um, I think that's what led Jesus to the cross, the relinquishing of power, the release of power. Um, but also think it's actually what made Jesus so powerful. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I, I appreciate you, um, the relinquishing of power, the release of power, the willingness to share power. Um, and I think that needs to be modeled. So my prayer is that not just success for the church we hope for, but effectiveness and impact, transformative impact as you model what it looks like to release power and ste yet step into power. Yeah, tap into a greater power. Do you see I what really I'm saying? That. Yeah, I do. Um, and Phil, I think you could probably imagine that, that we're often asked why why not Ines lead us if you're so interested in subverting power? Why not have Ines lead? And Bobby, you as the white man, why wouldn't you serve under her? And it's, it's usually said with such a way of, can you not do that, Bobby? Can you not serve under the power of a brown woman? Um, and it's said to Ines that way. It's never said to the two of us together at the same time. It's said by different people in different ways. But 
Um, we do believe that there is a place for that and a need for that in our culture, in our community, in our city, in our country, uh, where people of color need to be in leadership and white brothers and sisters need to serve under them. That's been a story of my mentorship, of my discipleship uh, over and over again. But then we believe one step past that is a place where we can serve fully together side by side. Yeah. Is, is a vision of the kingdom in which those dynamics of power where we swing in the pendulum, um, we can take one step further. And that's the step that we're aiming to live into is the step beyond that where neither one of us is necessarily fully leading the other and just swinging the pendulum, uh, but that we're living into a shared power um, with the power of Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you, um, your insight, your wisdom, your vulnerability, your transparency, your honesty. Um, I look forward to to watching both from afar and up close. Um, hey, listen, if we're tapping into Trinitarian power, that's three, I think. <laughs> and so I think there's me, is, I'll be, there's one, and this is two. I feel like there has to be a third. Anyway, that's you're all. Funny. I'm not saying anything. I'm not, I'm just, just doing math. That's you're, all I'm you're doing. funny, dude. Inez, Inez, <laughs> we, we had the same conversation. Um, but I look forward to our paths continuing to cross and doing work together. Yes, and, please. Um, and just, just impacting our culture um, in, in fresh new ways. I got a, an email, a text from uh, um, a professor that said that um, students today are hungry for a new, fresh way to do social justice. Mm. And I said, I am too. So thank you for feeding me, for feeding uh, our listeners. And um, God bless you, my brother. Thank you. God bless you too. Once again, I want to thank my guest, Pastor Bobby Harrison, for his time, his wisdom, his friendship, his energy, um, sharing today on Intersections with Phil Allen. But before I let you go, let me remind you about my documentary short film, Open Wounds, available right now for viewing by going to philallenjr.com forward slash open wounds and be on the lookout for my book, Open Wounds, which is set to be released in February 2021. Thank you for meeting me at Intersections. <laughs>